If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to join me in John's first letter. First John, we're going to get to a particular segment of verses, but before that, I really want to work through a little of the book. I warn you, we're going to have a scripture-heavy message. Run for the doors. That means you're going to have to look at your Bible. You're going to have to pay attention to some verses. Wouldn't it be great to know everything? To not sarcastically, but to truly be a know-it-all. How many of you are already there? You're just, you know it all. You got to figure it out. Most hands that are up are 16-year-olds. I understand that. I have once been there myself. To never make a wrong decision. To never go a wrong direction, to always end up in the best possible scenario because we've not made one misstep in any word or decision made. What I know to be true about us is we're not living life like that and oftentimes even when we know what we should do, when it's so clear that we can't miss it, we miss it. A preacher told this story, I like it because the preacher wins in the end. I will tell you from the onset, this is not a true story, but after all, a preacher told it, so could we expect anything different? Pastor was having trouble with his congregation. In fact, he was at odds with the congregation in his church. Nothing was going right. There was chaos. There was turmoil every single day. And so the chairman of the deacons went to the pastor and said, we have to have a meeting. We have to have a conference to discuss the issues that are going on. We have to have a discussion about these problems, and we've got to get it corrected once and for all. And I mean, you and all 12 deacons got to come into a room and figure this out. Little did the pastor know that everybody had already been talking. All of the deacons had already settled that his viewpoint had no chance of success. But of course, the charade was carried out with a lot of discussion on the subject. And at the end, the chairman of the deacons stood and announced that it was time to vote. He proposed that a majority vote would carry and rule in the matter and all agreed. Everyone recorded their vote on a piece of paper. And when the votes were counted, the chairman stood up and he told the pastor that he had been outvoted 12 to 1. The majority had spoken. Now we get the heroic turn. The pastor stood in that room with the 12 deacons and he said, so you think you're right and I'm wrong because of a vote. Well, I'll call on God to give us a sign that I am in fact right and you are wrong. And immediately there was a deafening clap of thunder and a flash of lightning that came into the room. And it struck the mahogany table where they were gathered, and the table was cracked in two, and all twelve of the deacons fell out of their chairs to the floor, and untouched and triumphant, the pastor stood in the room. The head deacon got back up off the floor, his hair was singed, his glasses were hanging on one ear, his clothes were in disarray. He looked at the pastor and he said, okay, so it's twelve to two, but we still have the majority. That was a pretty weak laugh. It was a very long joke for that weak laugh. (laughs) The reality is sometimes as believers, we are so set in our ways, we are so staunch in demanding our rights that we end up at the wrong destination even though we can't possibly miss the right thing to do. 
Sometimes we're so adamant in silencing the Spirit that we fail because we just press on. That's where John steps in. I love this letter from the beloved apostle. He really wants us to determine some things in our lives. And it is interesting to me as I read the letter that John writes here that he assures us there are a lot of things that we know. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 3, here's what he says. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. A hallmark of a believer is that they keep the commandments of Jesus. In 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Twelve verses later, he says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Five verses later, he says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Five verses later, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. In chapter 5 and verse 15, he writes, And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Again in chapter 5, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Verse 19, and we know that we are of God. And the whole world lieth in wickedness, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. All through this letter, John is communicating to us that there is stuff that we know, that we can be certain of. We can walk, navigate, travel through the journey of life with these certainties. He wants us to be aware of the things that we know. And I believe that knowing these things is a product of abiding, dwelling, continuing. Those are some of John's favorite words in this book. I want you to note this first, and we'll look at 1 John 2, 24 and 25. This is kind of the crux of our study here, chapter 2. Know what he writes here in 1 John 2, 24 and 25. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. What am I supposed to abide in, continue in, dwell in, abide in the truth? That's what John is saying here, contextually speaking. In fact, when he says abide in you, the you there is in the emphatic position. It's a very strong statement that you is in direct contrast to the false teachers that he is addressing in the preceding verses. In effect, the devil and false teachers trade in deception. 
Lying is their native tongue. They will pervert the apostles' doctrine. They will twist and mangle the reality of Jesus Christ. But as for you, emphatically you abide in truth. Abide in that which you have heard from the beginning. Now, if we take that phrase from the beginning, we'll understand that John has already addressed this. In fact, listen to how John begins his letter, 1 John 1.1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. John is referencing Jesus Christ. He is referencing Jesus and the work of the gospel. What John is telling us to do is to abide in what we know to be true about Jesus. To abide in the truth of the revealed word of God. To no matter where our life takes us or what scenario we find ourselves in, to always and ever abide in truth. You say, now hold on, let me just understand Never change anything that I believe in. Now I'm saying to you, if you were raised in error or if you adhere to something that is unscriptural, obviously we don't want to perpetuate that falsehood. But what he is saying here is if you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through his shed blood and you have access to the revealed word of God, don't ever change The world will always seek to denigrate Jesus Christ. False religion, the world system, will always work to tear down Christ. No doubt, society itself, under the auspices of the prince and power of the air, will always work to eliminate the absolute truth of Scripture. But if you want to know what to do, if you want to arrive at the right destination, abide in truth. Charles Spurgeon said, you cannot find a better gospel. Persevere then in what you already know. If we accept and adhere to the truth of the gospel, the result is, according to these verses, we will continue in fellowship with the Father and the Son. I wish I knew what to do. I wish I knew what to say. I wish I knew how to arrive at my desired destination. Well, I would say to you, abide in truth. But not just that, he'll come back in verse 27 of chapter 2 and he writes something very intriguing. His language is explicit. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, you may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Twice in those verses, John uses the word anointing. In verse 20, which is earlier in the chapter, he says, ye have an unction from the Holy One and ye know all things. That's a powerful phrase. You know all things. How do I know all things? Well, you have an unction from the Holy One. You have an anointing in the Spirit. 
Now, I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to good Baptist people. And anytime you start to talk about unctions and anointings and fillings of the Spirit, people get nervous. Say, Pastor, we don't even raise hands. We don't say amen. I've never tapped my foot, even tapped my foot in church. Now, if you're going to get wacky and you're going to start talking about unctions of the Holy One and anointings of the Spirit and fillings of the Spirit, I might need to leave and get out of here because that leads to death and disaster. But I say to you, unction is John's word. Anointing is John's word. Filling is Paul's word. We'll get there in a minute. What is being communicated by the beloved disciple John? Here's what he's saying. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have believed the truth about Jesus and the truth of the gospel, then you have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have received, he says in those verses, that's past tense. It currently resides, it abides in you, that is the Holy Spirit. It's not an education. It's not, by strict terms, some mystical power. It is a person. It is the third person of the Godhead who indwells us. Jesus, in the upper room conversations with the disciples, introduces the work of the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And in John chapter 16, as he begins to really delineate what the Holy Spirit's ministry will be, he uses a particular word. The word is comforter. I'm glad that Jesus teaches this to the disciples. In short order, Jesus, who is physically there with the disciples, is going to be leaving. He's going to ascend to his Father. He's going to be there in heaven at the right hand of his Father, seated in the heavenlies. But Jesus encourages the disciples. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you an orphan. I'm going to send the Comforter to you. And in fact, it's better for you that I go there so that he will come here. Jesus taught the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit for all believers So what does the Holy Spirit do? If I'm to abide in the Spirit, what exactly does He do for me? Well, number one, we grasp this from Scripture. If I walk in the Spirit, the Bible says, I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the lusts of the flesh are many. Galatians 5 delineates them. The fruit of the Spirit is several. Galatians 5 delineates them. I have to abide in the Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit to me? Number one, the Holy Spirit equips us. You think of the old pioneer days. Many of you were around back then. I was not. Travel by horse and carriage. Think of a ship that's leaving port. If the ship is going to leave port or that old provisional trailer or, or carriage is supposed to leave, you've got to get all the stuff on board that you're going to need. You've got to equip it for the journey. That's what the Holy Spirit is for us. Not an unfolding thing. The reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that he equips us and his equipping is comprehensive. He, he is the spirit of truth. I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know how to navigate this. I, I wish I understood the truth. Well, here's what the Bible says, John 14, 17. Even the spirit of truth, 
whom the world, the non-believer, the lost, cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. You want to know truth? Rely on the Holy Spirit. Abide in the Spirit and know truth. He's the Spirit of grace, Hebrews 10, 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now I'm just seizing that last phrase because it's the name of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of grace. How can I behave graciously, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit? How can I season my words with grace always as is a mandate of the New Testament? Abide in the Spirit. He equips us. He's the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of grace. He's the Spirit of life, Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He's the Spirit of Glory, 1 Peter 4, 14, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. You say to yourself, I am a a newbie. I don't know truth. I don't know right or wrong. I can't grasp this. I know that I have to behave graciously. How do I arrive there? I grasp that I'm not under the penalty of sin and death, that I have been gifted life and I live this life abundantly. I know I want holiness. I, I know I want glory. How do I attain that? Every aspect of the Christian's life and service intersects with truth and grace, and life, and holiness, and glory, and all of that is accomplished in the Holy Spirit. Those are his genuine signatures upon our heart. He will tutor us, and he will enable us in the process of sanctification. He's an equipper. But he's not just an equipper, he is a guide. Paul reminded the Corinthian believers that they were now living in, that they were now the living temple of the Holy Spirit. That is convicting in and of itself. Every believer permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But then Paul writes this. This gets a little tricky. As I've already told you, past tense, you've been anointed. Past tense, you have an unction from the Holy One. And now we read this in Ephesians 5.18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. How can you be filled with something that is already indwelling you? The fact is, be filled with the Spirit, you could understand, is the idea of being controlled, be dominated by, be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. In direct context of Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Don't be under the influence of wine, but rather be filled with, be controlled by, dominated by, under the influence of the Spirit. He will guide you. It is readily apparent who is under the influence of the Spirit and who is pressing back against the direction of the Spirit. He is a guide. My wife and I, as we often do, were recently traveling in Europe. We went to see our daughter. We had a long layover in London, and Heathrow is a very large airport. I had, to the best of my ability, attempted to do some homework to understand within this layover how we were going to transport ourselves from Heathrow to see some of London, what we needed to see to get back to the airport to sleep for like 
two and a half minutes to get up and continue our journeys. When we got in, we were looking for a train that would take us over into London, and I have never been to Heathrow Airport in my life, never. Made it through customs, working my way through, trying to be confident, trying to exude confidence. I start going the wrong direction. My wife, ever the supportive one, said to me, normally you study these things out. Intoning, what have you been doing with your time, dude? Not planning for me to miss something in London because you can't get us on a train. As we were trying to buy tickets, I stood there like an idiot. And I'm like, do you tap? What do you, what do, you do? And there are people in blue jackets. You know what I wanted? I wanted someone in a blue jacket to go, hey, come here. Sh- show me what button to push. Don't leave me just yet because there are multiple platforms here. Take me to the right platform. Don't let me get on the wrong train. And then when I get there, tell me you want to go four stops. On the fourth stop, get off the train. Stand on the tracks. There's going to be another blue coat who finds you. He's going to take you outside to a shiny black taxi. He's going to put you in it. He's going to tell the driver where you are to get out. Shut your mouth. Buckle your seatbelt and let the driver do the driving. And when he stops and tells you to get out, get out, stand on the curb, you'll be where you want to be. Just listen to the guys in the blue coats and let the taxi driver drive. You've never been here before, Chris. This is uncharted territory for you. Let them help guide you. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. So let me ask you this. Why is your life so chaotic then? Why are you so trepidatious? Why is there disorder and disruption? May I assert to you, it is because in our natural setting, we press so hard to do things in the flesh. If we would just surrender and be filled with the Spirit, under the control of the Spirit, dominated by the Spirit, we'd get where we want to go. We truly know how to arrive there. You know, if the Holy Spirit's doing the leading in your life, there will be holiness Don't lay your sin and failure at the feet of the Holy Spirit. Because wherever the Holy Spirit is leading, there is holiness. If there is not holiness, that is not fruit of the Spirit. That's not where He's directing. Abide in the Spirit. He's an equipper. He's going to give you all the provisions you need to make it to the harbor. To make it to your destination. He's going to help you all along the way. He's going to guide you. And He's a provoker. He's a provoker. In verse 27, he says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Say there. Now wait, that says, you need not that any man teach you. So we leave now. We don't need preachers. We don't need connection group teachers. I think what he is saying is, listen, you ought not be like one of the false teachers, nor should you be deceived by their false teaching. You don't need that any man teach you that that's false. The Holy Spirit tells you that's false teaching. That's bad doctrine. That's denigrating Jesus. But he's saying in these verses that we are provoked to something in particular. 
What the Apostle John is referring to specifically is the fact that the Holy Spirit protects us from false teachers and that he provokes us to do something. What does he provoke us to do? What is that fruit of the Spirit? What does it look like when his presence is manifested? 1 John 3, verse 23, here's what he writes. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Okay, now here's what we're doing. We're just abiding. I don't know anything. Let's take that. But I know what the Bible tells me to be true. So I have a foundation. I want to make it to the finish line of life. And in the context here, John says, when Jesus Christ returns, rather than hanging your head and shuffling your feet, knowing you just turned in a really bad test, you can stand in his presence with confidence if you abide in truth. Don't pervert the teaching of Jesus. Don't twist or mangle or deny the teaching of Scripture. Abide in the Spirit. He is your equipper. He is your guide. He is a provoker of good things. What does he provoke? Clearly here, he provokes love for one another. Much of Jesus' teaching in his final days with the disciples was about loving one another. That's really easy, isn't it? Not at all. It is easy to love people that are like us. It is easy to love people that like us. It is easy to love people that we understand and get along with. It is really challenging to love those that oppose us, that are unlike us. We grasp natural love. We do not fully comprehend spiritual love, which is what this is, the agape love that Jesus gives to us. Now, in that verse, believe is in a tense that means it's a one-time-for-all-time transaction. You don't get saved every day. You don't get saved over and over again, but you love one another. That verb is interesting. You believe once and it's done, but you love one another. The tense of that verb indicates now that's a continuous action. That is something you must do over and over and over and over again. You don't love somebody to become a Christian. You love one another because you are a Christian. We have to abide in truth. We have to abide in the Spirit. And the Spirit provokes within us that we abide in love. Now I want to make this even more clear. 1 John 4, verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. That's pretty dogmatic. Now he immediately says, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God, and we have known and have believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Now, I like when things come together in a Bible study. And man, do they come together in those verses. 
And it's backwards as we read down through there. John says very clearly, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us. Okay? How do I know that God dwells in us? Well, we'll love one another. How do I get to the place where we love one another? He says, well, he hath given us of his spirit. So it is evidence that we have the Spirit because we love one another. And then he gets really explicit in the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, and he's basically building our entire sermon backwards and then sums it up like I want to sum it up. Here's the truth. When you believe in Jesus Christ and you adhere to the truth of the gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit who will equip and who will guide you and who will provoke you to love. Therefore, your love of one another is evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is evidence of the fact that you believe the gospel. It's circular reasoning in a good way. And to sum up this really layered on layered reasoning, he says, God is love and he that dwelleth abideth, continuing in love, dwelleth in God and God in him. God has said something to us, shown us Jesus. He has done something for us, indwelt us from the whole, in, with the Holy Spirit. And now he wants to do something through us and that is that we should love one another. John's really clear about it. No one has seen God the Father ever. I think this is directly asserting a a lie that the false teachers were proclaiming. And he says, so if Jesus is no longer visible and no one has ever seen God the Father, then we have to grasp that for the time being, people are not going to be able to see God's love unless we as believers demonstrate it. That's what he said specifically, God's love is perfected in us. So I'm perfect? Nope. Perfected. God's love is perfected in us. What does that mean? Well, here's simply what that means. God's love is made real, tangible, concrete, in and through us. When the children of God practice love toward one another, the world sees it is so intriguing that all of this ties the New Testament beautifully together. When God ordained the church, Jesus told us that the church would be his body in this world. They cannot see God. Jesus is not physically here, but we who are believers have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And God wants to love the world through us as we love one another. His love is made real. It's made concrete. It's made tangible to the world. So I say to you, if the world views the gospel as impractical, don't let yourself off the hook. You have not shown the world a gospel worthy of believing in. There's nothing more damning to the testimony of Jesus Christ, then when churches capitulate and pervert the truth of the gospel, the apostles' doctrine, and they fracture over all kinds of minor silly issues. Because there's an expectation that those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit have adhered to the truth, they will continue to abide in that, and love is the result. Someone wrote this, since no one has seen God, how are we supposed to get people who don't know God to believe that He exists? When the world observes Christians loving unconditionally as Jesus loved, they will be open to the gospel. The only God in Jesus most people will ever see is the one they see in you. They're not going to read about him in a book or go to the church, but they will see him in your life. One wrote a poem 
called Sermons We See. Now, I don't often fit poems in, but in seminary they say you're supposed to because people really respond to poetry. Here's the poem. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. How many of you say amen to that? Say, especially this one, dude, rabbit. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example's always clear. And the best of all preachers are men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. Here's the truth. We know that Scripture tells us by the foolishness of preaching, people are saved. It doesn't, it doesn't imply that we really don't preach the truth of the Word of God. There are other Scriptures that mandate that. Nor do I say to you that you should not individually fulfill the responsibility to adhere to the Great Commission and share the truth of the Gospel with individuals. But I will say to you, the impotency of the Gospel is not the Gospel's fault. The impotency of the gospel is the fault of Christians who just don't show Jesus as Jesus deserves to be shown to a lost world. Fuss, fume, fight. Spit, scratch, hate. Fractured, divide. Polarize everything. That's what Jesus would do. It's silliness. Whenever the Christian rejects Christ's definition of love, They fail Jesus. But whenever we reject the world's definition of love, that it's all about me, it's about meeting my needs, my plans, my wishes, when the Christian rejects that and demonstrates the agape love of self-sacrifice and humility and condescension and commitment, the world intuitively knows, as one wrote, that they have just seen a demonstration of love from some other planet, from some other place, From some other origin. That love doesn't make human sense. The stunning implication is this. Because as He is, so are we in the world. God is at work through us in the world. And we show that as we abide in Christ. Over and again, John uses these words. Dwell, abide, continue. They're all linked together. Can I simply say to you that I'm not giving you a list of practical steps that you must do in order to please God. I start all the way back at the beginning. There's some stuff you already know. Abide in that. Abide, reside in that. Abide in truth. If you want to truly know what to do, how to get to the right destination, if you really want to know all things, if you really want to know how to do right, abide in truth. Don't pervert the truth about Jesus. Don't denigrate, twist, or mangle, add to, or detract from the apostles' doctrine, the word of life, the word of God. Abide in the Spirit. Continue in the Spirit. He is an equipper. He has all of the provisions that can get you through. He will guide you every step of the way, and He will provoke some action within you. So when you are in life, be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Resist the flesh. Subdue, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Strong language within Scripture. Murder off your fleshly actions and be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And what you will find then is you abide in love. You don't have to strive to abide in love. You abide in love when you abide in the Spirit. You have the Spirit because you abide in the truth. And that the implication is when Jesus returns, you'll have confidence to stand before Him. You say, man, you, you took a long time 
just say a lot of simple things. Exactly. That's my job, to bore you and then try to get you to make a decision and give an offering. All of those things. Why is your life a mess? So, well, I didn't know it was. Are you at perfect peace? Free from chaos, disruption, confusion? Say, well, no, but I, I don't think that'll happen till heaven. I'll say this, the invading forces won't relent until we're in heaven, but I can tell you, if you abide in truth, abide in the Spirit, and abide in love, you end up at the right destination. You know what to do. Not because you've had the experience, but because the promise of Scripture helps us to know that. I say this, look, we're dumb, spiritually speaking. We want what we want. And so we always resist the Holy Spirit because of our flesh. Just doesn't let him have control. That's dumb. They would don't talk down to us like that. All right, I'll end this like I did the first service. Rather than ending by saying you're dumb, spiritually speaking, I'll just say what John said, God is love. And that's a happy way to end. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.